The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So just this week, um, I was sort of reminded of a story that I don't think I've ever shared with this church, which would be a rarity probably in and of itself. But uh, I think it might apply. It goes like this. So um, I like meat. I like to eat meat because I'm American. American, right? So uh, my wife does not like to eat meat. Now, it's not a moral thing. It's, it's not, you know, anything. It actually just sort of grosses her out. So the only thing that my wife will eat meat-wise is boneless chicken or boneless turkey, and that's all. If, if she has to peel it off the bone, she's not going to do it. And it's, it's not a moral thing. It just grosses her out, right? And that's allowed. I don't know what I did wrong. She ate meat when I first met her, so I don't know what I did along the way, but I messed something up somewhere. And so, um, so meals can be interesting at times, and, and, and sometimes you have to pick and choose when you're going to get to eat certain things, right? So there's one thing, and she's, she's fine with me eating meat. She's told, she'll cook it for me, but she's fine with me eating meat except for one thing. There's one thing she has banned me from eating, and that is veal. Now, the reason that I'm not allowed to eat veal is a moral issue. It has to do with the way veal is prepared. And so I don't want to ruin anyone's diet in here because maybe some of you guys are enjoying veal right now. And so I don't want to ruin it, but it's pretty nasty how they make that stuff or what they do to the animals in advance to make it. It's gross. It really, there's no reason to eat veal except for the fact that it tastes absolutely delicious. There's no other reason for that, right? (laughs) So I've only had it like once in my life at this point in the story a few years ago. And, uh, we go with our extended family to this Italian restaurant in town. We go to, it's Vinny's right up here. I don't know if I should, I probably shouldn't say that. They, this doesn't really make them look, it's not Vinny, it was uh, Minnie's. We went to Minnie's uh, Italian restaurant. Oh, please don't tell Vinny that we, okay. So we're there eating and, uh, and my oldest daughter was just a baby at the time. And, uh, and you, you get, moms, you know how it works. When the food, is, you know, right when you're about ready to eat, that's when the baby needs to eat. That's just how it works, right? So, so my wife is going to go to the car to go uh, breastfeed our, our daughter. And she tells me as she's leaving, she's like, do me a favor. Order chicken parmesan for me. I can do that. Boneless chicken parmesan. Got it. So I'm sitting there. My wife's sitting across from me. She gets up and leaves. And my sister-in-law is sitting right there next to her. And uh, I know we're, we're just, you know, ordering and whatnot. And, and suddenly... They come to take our order. My wife's not there, and I see this window of opportunity. And I go, hmm, she'll think it's chicken parmesan. Because it's, I mean, for me, not for her, for me. (laughs) So I'm thinking like, oh, what kind of sicko do you think I am? So I'm like, so I'm like, okay, okay, real quick. And I'm, I'm telling the waiter, like, this is what I want. Um, and I, I may have even told him not to say what it was when he come back. I don't know. I was being really, really devious. And so, so the only person that knew there was my sister-in-law. She's sitting right diagonally from me. And she's kind of like, you're going to get in trouble. I'm like, shh. So they bring our food. My wife comes back. Dinner's going great. Vinny's is really good, just in case you thought I was down on him just a minute ago. But about halfway through the meal, my wife goes, hey, um, is your chicken dark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I look down, and my chicken is really white meat. And at that moment, I raise up, and I lock eyes with my sister-in-law, and she's going, oh, no. (laughs) 
they had mixed up our meals. And now my wife is halfway through the most delicious plate of veal parmesan that I have ever seen but have yet not tasted. Yeah. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) So the point of all this is Jesus died to save me. If he can save me from this, he can save you too. Amen. Let's go. No, the, the point is, listen, the truth's kind of important at times, isn't it? It can actually hurt people if it's not at times, right? Amen? Hey, you don't have to nod quite so hard. Like, I know, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the truth is really, really important. Well, what do we do with this? What if the truth just seems so unbelievable that it, how could it possibly be true? How could it possibly be true? Today, well, we've been working through the book of Luke for quite some time. We'll finish up the book of Luke in about two more weeks. I think it's something like 65 sermons we've been doing now as we've been walking through this book. And today, we come to this culmination, this this crux, this incredible story. And what I want to make sure that you understand, and as we talk through this stuff right now for the next few minutes, is this. This is true. This isn't like, oh, it's it's not veal, it's chicken true. I mean, this is like factually verifiably true as unbelievable and as too good to be true as it might seem. So when we last left this story, really just on Good Friday as we were going through there, it was in a pretty dark place. You got a group of people that have given their entire lives to following Jesus for years now and have staked everything on him. They've staked their entire future on him, that he is who he says he is. And they have heard teachings for years about this kingdom, about the kingdom of God that's going to come, how the kingdom of God's going to make everything right again, how everything's going to be repaired. And these are people that have lived in oppression for a really long time. And they've left their jobs, they've left their families, they've left their careers, they've left all these things behind, and they have gone all in on Jesus, and they're following him. They have given up more to follow Jesus than most of us are, are even, can even fathom in our current context. And now he's dead. They're expecting the kingdom of God, and he's dead. How do you have a kingdom with a dead king? And that's the situation. And so, as the the crucifixion ends, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea comes in. He was actually a a Pharisee who had not consented, who had, had actually given his opposition to the crucifixion of Jesus, but was easily outvoted and pushed aside. He actually goes to Pilate, and he makes out a deal, and they they bring down the body of Jesus. Other accounts tell us that Nicodemus, if you know your Bible, in John chapter 3, the same guy who sneaks over to see Jesus and says, how can a man be born again when he's still alive? Remember that guy? Also a Pharisee, sneaking away, following Jesus, obviously, but because of their lives and what's going on, they're, they're not going all in on this because they stand to lose a lot. And so they're, they're kind of secret followers of Jesus. But even they, the Bible says, are anticipating the kingdom of God. They're waiting for it. And then as Joseph sees this goes down, as Nicodemus sees this goes down, they can't keep it secret anymore. And Nicodemus brings the spices. Joseph of Arimathea goes and gets the linen cloths. They go to Pilate. They get permission to take the body down. Can you imagine a more grueling thing than bringing the lifeless body of Jesus down and wrapping it 
And they take it down into a tomb. Now, the end of Luke chapter 24 tells us that these women were still with them. And we gave women props last week as we should because in the scriptures, there always seems to be the first to get it and the closest to follow. And that's what's going. Even as this ends, they're there. And and they want to be able to go through these traditions, this kind of the way that they do burials in the Jewish culture. But the problem is the day is ending. Passover is there. It's the time of preparation and it's the Sabbath. And there's laws that prevent them from going through all this work, especially when you're dealing with a dead body, especially the body of someone who's considered at this point at least legally, a criminal. So the way it works is this. There in Israel, they would have these tombs that are etched into the side of the wall, just carved out. Inside the tomb, there would be a a platform or an area where the body would be brought in and laid down on that platform to be prepared. They would put the ointments and the spices and all the stuff that they do to preserve or to do whatever it is they do with the body. They would wrap it up, and then at a certain point inside the tomb, on the outside of where that little platform is, there's little catacombs, little, um, almost little spots where the bodies would actually be placed. So you would have like a family tomb, for example. And so the body would be brought in, laid down, they would put all the spices, wrap it up, then they would slide it into one of those little alcoves, and they would seal that with a small stone. Big stone goes on the outside, and then after a period of time, long, long down the road, as the body decomposed and it comes down to just bones, they would bring in those boxes, what do they call them, ossuaries, you know those boxes? They would compile all the bones in there, and then they could kind of reuse those tombs. And Joseph had a tomb that hadn't been used. Joseph had a brand new one. And so they bring the body of Jesus into that tomb. They lay it on the platform and they've got all the stuff to do all the wrapping, all the preparation, but they don't have the time. And so they have to stop. And so the next day is the Sabbath. It's that Saturday. And so everyone goes back to their place. I can't imagine what was going through the minds of the disciples. I can't imagine what everyone, these women, everyone were thinking Guys like Joseph of Arimathea and and Nicodemus, what are they thinking? Like, what's going to happen to us now, now that word is out, that we've honored Jesus' body in this way? Are are we in trouble next? A lot of questions going on. And so then early on Sunday morning, the scriptures tell us, verse 24, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. So this is the women that had been following from before. And they're there to prepare the body of Jesus. Some people say that they came really, really early because they were trying to sneak over. They were afraid of persecution, so they're trying to sneak over and prepare the body of Jesus. I'm telling you, that is not true. These women were never afraid to be close to Jesus. They followed him everywhere he went, and they knew that there would have been guards outside anyway. They're not hiding. They're getting there as early as they can because they want to honor Jesus. And it's probably killing them that that body is not prepared the way it's supposed to be. Here's their Savior, their God, the one that they have given everything for, who has loved them better than anyone else, and he's just laying there on a rock. So they come early out of dedication. These women get it. Now, who are they? I'm going to skip ahead for a moment, but verse 10 tells us. It was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a woman who Jesus had healed from, had cast demons out from her. There is Joanna, the wife of Cusa, 
Um, Joanna was the wife of the manager of Herod's household. So if you know your, your history there, Herod is like the, the king, if you will, with a little K of that area. Sometimes we think that the people who followed Jesus early on were just like these weak little backcountry poor people and that's it. But that's not true. Uh, the, the story and the understanding of Jesus had, had really permeated even the highest ranks through there. And, and this woman is married to the man who manages Herod's entire household. So we have Joanna, we have Mary Magdalene, and then we have Mary, mother of James, who there's not totally sure which James that is, but clearly a follower of Jesus and maybe other women that are there with him. So they come early to this tomb. Now, I told you inside the tomb, once the body is placed into one of those slots or whatever they would call it, they would put a small stone over that to try to seal it up. And then over the outside of the tomb, the main entrance They would put big, giant stones. They were about four feet or more in diameter, 14 to 18 inches thick, huge stones, and they would roll in sort of a grooved track right outside the door. And so at a certain point, they would roll that giant stone over to cover the hole that goes into the tomb, put a smaller rock underneath it, just like if you were, you know, chalking a car tire or something like that, and then they would seal it up with mud or whatever it is they used to seal it. So this stone, probably not sealed up yet, but has been rolled over in front of the tomb of Jesus. And guards have been placed there. And these women are coming over there. Other biblical accounts tell us that as they're coming to the tomb, they're talking amongst themselves like, hey, listen, when we get there, like, how are we going to do this? How in the world are we going to get that stone out of the way? They may even be thinking, are the the guards even going to let us? Like, how is this going to go? And so they make their way, in verse 2 it says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Uh, Matthew's account is my favorite of this. Matthew's account describes a glorious lightning bolt filled interaction where an angel of heaven comes down, this light comes out, he rolls the stone away and then sits on top of the stone like he's just sitting there. And the guards are frozen and like in shock and terrified. It's an amazing thing. When we get to heaven, that is one of those things I want to see on the instant replay screen for sure when we get there. It's going to be amazing. So they show up and they say, amen. I know, right? Amen. No one else, just you. You're my boy. Amen. But verse three, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Interesting little tidbit for you Bible scholar people in the room. First time that Luke adds the word Lord to Jesus. The crucifixion and the resurrection prove that he is the Lord. And at this point, Luke finally says, no, 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 Lord Jesus. And it's going to show up in his writing a lot, moving through into the book of Acts and whatnot. Interesting little tidbit there. Verse 4. Now, while they, these women, while they were perplexed about this, because now, remember, verse 23, excuse me, chapter 23, verse 55, just a couple of verses up, look. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So on on Friday night, when the body of Jesus is brought in and laid in the tomb, these women come with them. They're following Joseph of Arimathea. They're following Nicodemus. They're following him in there to lay the body there. They see the tomb, and they see exactly where Jesus' body is laid. So they're expecting to see all of that again. Now they show up. There's no stone, and the body's gone. And kind of a duh moment, they're perplexed. (laughs) Like, yeah, really? Like they're just stunned. They don't, they're confused about what to happen. And then it says this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now that doesn't mean they're Easter finest, just so you know. Doesn't mean like these two guys showed up and they were dressed sharp, man. They look good. Like that's not what that means. 
This is like lightning. This is like the description of Jesus when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and begins to just glow and just sort of, it's like the veil of humanity that has covered his, his, his divinity is finally released and this lightning comes out, this bright light. Like that's the kind of thing that they're experiencing here. And they're afraid, as we all would, right? Amen? They're afraid. And by the way, this is one of the only times in all the Bible when an angel appears and they don't say, do not fear. Unique, I would think. I would want to hear that in that moment. But anyway, angel shows up, boom, verse 5, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, and, and by the way, I love sarcasm. Angels are sarcastic, but this is awesome. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Like even in that right there, it's like, listen, he's alive. Why are you in a cemetery? He's alive. Why are you looking for him here? That's a beautiful thing. And can I just say as a side note right now, that's a line we should use a whole lot more, church. Why do we seek the living among the dead? And what I mean by that is we look for the meaning of life. We look for fulfillment in our life. We look for purpose for our life in so many places all the time. And it is literally the equivalent of walking around in a graveyard looking for the live body. Why are we seeking the purpose of life among so many things that are dead? Whether it be false religions where their prophets have died and their tombs are still full. Whether it be vain philosophies that have shown over and over and over there's no hope at the end. Whether it be things that we think are going to prop us up and make us happy finally. If we just had enough money, if we just had that relationship, if we just had that job, if we just had that vacation, all those things that we think are going to make us happy. And once we get them, we come out the other side still feeling dead. Why do we seek life among the dead? Amen, church? This is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one. Stop looking among dead things for a reason to make yourself happy. You're not going to find it. You're going to find dead bones. And this angel says, why are you, but I got to think there was a smirk. I think there's a little sarcasm with some heavy meaning, but a little sarcasm like, hey, why are you looking for a live guy around here? Even the soldiers are frozen. Look at them. And they're stunned, as you might say, and look at verse six, the best verses in all the Bible. He is not here, but has risen. Amen. Let me try it one more time. I know you're with me. We'll see if they are. Uh, he is not here, but has risen. Amen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? He says, hey, remember? Think back, guys. Think back. Remember when you were in Galilee? Remember some of that stuff he told you that was going to happen and you didn't even fully understand it? Think about it. And look around and do the math. In verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and the rest. Now that would have been twelve, but we know what happened to the other guy, right? Now, Mark's account even throws in, go tell the disciples and who? And Peter. The one who had failed Jesus and had denied Jesus. Hey, go tell the disciples and especially tell Peter. And so they rush back to go tell the disciples what they've seen. And they're going to give this story. Now, there's a really interesting thing that happens here. 
in this were given suddenly their names. Now, I've already given them to you because early in the story, but, but here he's like, they go back, these women, and they go tell the disciples, hey, there was an angel there. They said he's alive and, and the tomb's empty. And then Luke throws in, by the way, the people that were there, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, why is that? Because Luke, who's writing this, is a historian. Luke is writing this for a man who he's trying to convince he wants him to be sure of what's going on. The purpose statement at the very beginning of the book of Luke, he says, I'm writing these things to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may be sure of these things. And so when Luke does this, it's not just a random account. He's saying, hey, listen, here's who was there. There's Mary, there's Joan, Joan there's, this is who's there. And what he's saying is this, go ask them, go check yourself. He's throwing this in and Luke does this a lot. The scriptures do this a lot. The guy who carried Jesus's cross, his name is what? Simon, from where? Cyrene, why is that thrown in there? That's their way of saying, oh yeah, and the guy that carried the cross, his name's Simon, he lives over in Cyrene. Go check for yourself. You know why, church? Because this is true. This is real. And he's literally saying, most excellent Theophilus, I want you to know these things are true like you know anything in this world. And listen, here's who was there. Go ask, go ask Mary. Now, here's what's weird about that, though. In that day, ladies, don't hate on me. This isn't me. I'm against this. I'm with you, okay? But in that day, you weren't supposed to trust the testimony of a woman in any way whatsoever. Women, you want to hear how bad it was back then? This is, this is, this is going to get you riled. Are you ready? And I'm, remember, I'm with you. Say, he's with me. All right, so <laughs> just to say. So Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, he says this. Do not put trust in a single witness, but let there be three or at least two whose evidence shall be credited by their past lives. So he's saying this. Hey, at least have two witnesses, preferably three, and you'll know they're telling the truth in part by all of their agreement, but also because their past lives will be honorable lives. They'll be, kind of, they'll be people you can trust, is what he says. And then, and you go, oh, that makes sense. That's, a good, that's good stuff, Josie. We should write that down. All right, and then he, then he says this. From women, let no evidence ever be accepted. Because of their levity, in other words, because they're lighthearted and carefree, they just don't get it. That's what he says. And then also, and because of their temerity, in other words, because of their brazenness, he says, they're either too lighthearted, they don't get it, or they're just so brazen, they're just, ah, back up off me. And so just don't listen to women at all. That was all over the Roman culture everywhere in that day. Philosopher Philo, he claimed that women were irrational and could not be trusted. And pagan philosopher Celsus once said this, he, he was challenging an early church father, a guy named Origen, and he told him, he said, listen, your whole faith is built on the testimony of half-frantic and self-deceived women. That's what he said. Everybody said, <laughs> And this is the first, first of all, these women are following Jesus closer than anyone else. Amen, ladies? Which is often the case. And we should learn from them. Amen, men? But number two is this. Why would that be the case? I'll tell you why. Listen, if you were making this story up in a culture where that's the way people thought and believed, where, where a, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court, if you were making that up, who would you have be the first person who notices the empty tomb? It would be anyone but that, right? 
It, it's, it's like all the, uh, the, the Bigfoot people. Now listen, Bigfoot people, if you're in this room, I'm sort of with you. I just, I just have to say, I'm sort of with you. So here's what I have to say. I do not believe in Bigfoot, but I really want to, <laughs> okay? I just, I think it would be more interesting if it was true. So I like the stories. I've got stickers. I've got shirts. I like the whole thing. I don't think there's a single one anywhere, and I think it's ridiculous, but I really wish it was true, okay? I mean, squatchy, all that. I'm down. But in every Bigfoot story, who tells the story? Is it ever a five-year-old? No. Why? Because we would blow that off. Oh, you're just a dumb little kid. You don't even know what you saw. But we go, oh, it was a grown-up. Usually drunk hunter from the backwoods, which is not... But anyways... <laughs> but you, if you're telling something that's made up, you want to be able to portray that it's coming from a trustworthy source. And in the culture of that day, though the women were absolutely trustworthy, the culture didn't believe so. And yet this comes out and like... Here's what I'm saying. People, this is not made up. This is true. And if it was made up, you would never do this. You would, you would have like some notable person or you'd have like 10 guys. You wouldn't have the story be the 11 dedicated following men of Jesus are off hiding and the women are the ones who found it. You would never write that. You know why? Because this is true. Amen? This is true. But still, that's messed up, ladies. I'm with you on that. And then verse 11, and, the, and you see the reaction of the guys, right? So they go back to tell the guys, verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Verse 12, but Peter. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. John tells us Peter ran to the tomb. He, tells, he says that Peter and John ran. John just outran him. But when Peter got there, Peter pushed him out of the way, runs into the tomb. He finds the face cloth. He finds everything all folded up, and he's blown away by it. Now, some people translate this in a bad way. When it says that he went home marveling at what happened, some people go, See, Peter just didn't even get it, and he just went, I don't believe the women, and I don't know what to make of this. I guess I'll just go home. It's not true. Peter's from Galilee. And in the book of Mark, the people were told, hey, Jesus has gone on ahead of you to Galilee. This is where he's going to be. And Peter is now returning home, marveling at what he's seen. Later, the guys are going to be out on this boat at the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's going to say, well, they're, they're sort of waiting there. Let's go fishing, which is always a good idea. And so they get in the boat and they go out into the water and they're out there fishing. The Bible tells us all night long they're fishing and they don't catch anything. And some guy in a robe that they can't really recognize is off on the shore walking by. And he yells from the shore and he goes, hey, you having any luck? And Peter and the guys go, uh, no, not catching anything. Well, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they probably grumbled a little. This guy doesn't even have a boat. What does he know? That's what fishermen do. But anyway, they do it. And they throw their nets on the other side of the boat. And suddenly the nets are filled with fish. And they're just blown away at how many fish are catching. Now, if you know the story, the first time that Peter ever met Jesus, that's the same thing that actually happens. And so at first, because, I mean, look, we're fishermen. We get excited about fish, right? So they're excited. They're pulling them in. And then John looks at Peter and goes, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter raises up, looks, grabs his jacket, and poof, 
into the water, leaves the boat behind, leaves the fish behind, and hightails it to the shore because Jesus is alive. Amen? It's a true story. Now, so what's the point for us? Why does it matter today? Because, I mean, here we are over 2,000 years later, a ton of people in a big room, and we do this every year. We get together, we celebrate all this. So why does this matter today? I'm going to be really, really quick with this, but here's the deal. The resurrection is Christianity. Some of you might be here thinking Christianity is about some sort of moral set of values and all these things that God wants us to do and doesn't want us to do. That is not true. The the Christianity is about a person and what that person did. Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. None of the other stuff matters at all if that didn't happen. And it is true. We are not, Christianity is not a set of morals. It's not a philosophy. It's not a way of life. It's a person. We follow Jesus Christ. Amen? And so this becomes really, really important because with this resurrection, we, we benefit from this. N- number one, with this resurrection, we have confidence. This resurrection gives us confidence in everything else. There might be people here in this room, for example, that would say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm only here because my family made me come and it's what I do. It's Easter. But I just, I don't like Christianity because there's some things about Christianity that just don't sit well with me. Maybe it's Christianity's views on marriage. Maybe it's Christianity's views on sexuality. Maybe it's Christianity's views on creation or science or any of these kind of things that you think these are the barriers that you go, I just can't take that. But here's what I, here's what you got to know. Listen, if Jesus Christ died, was buried and rose again, then you can have confidence to know that all the other stuff matters and it's for your good. And even if you don't understand it, even if you do wrestle with it, that's fine. That's not the issue. The idea is you need to know that God himself died, was buried, and rose again. Even Jesus, when people challenged his authority, they would say, how do we know that you're really God? You make all these claims, you say all this stuff. He says, I'll give you one sign. I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to raise again. So if that really happened, it proved that he's God. And it honestly gives us the ability to have confidence in everything else. Creation, for example. I don't know. Was it six literal days? Was it a lot? I don't know. I I wasn't there. I just have Genesis 1 and 2 to go by. But here's what I do know. Jesus taught about creation. Jesus taught that God created the heavens and the earth. And he said he was God. And well, how do I know that he's God? Because he said he will die and rise again on the third day. If he can pull that off, I'll believe him about creation. Because it means he was there. It means he's the Lord who did that. And so in everything, we can have total confidence in anything that we we do from that point on. I mean, guys, listen, these disciples that are here, they go from hiding, from doubting the testimony of women from scared to death. I mean, Peter is the guy who a little girl at a fire is like, you're a Jesus follower, aren't you? And he's like, no way. They go from that to willingly dying like that because of Jesus Christ. Why? Because their confidence couldn't be shaken. They had seen that their savior has defeated death and rose again. And they knew that nothing else matters. They can build their life on this because their trust is in him, not in a philosophy. Does that make sense? And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives you confidence. It doesn't mean you have to understand anything. Your confidence isn't in understanding everything. The Bible, in fact, tells us not to lean on our own understanding. Our confidence is in him, even when we don't understand things. Amen? 
We can have confidence because of the resurrection. Number two, we can have clarity because of the resurrection. Everything makes sense through the resurrection. When you know that Jesus rose again, suddenly everything completely falls into place. And he, we see this in the story, right? The angel's like, okay, he's alive. Now listen, think about what he said. Think about what happened. And he's coaching these women into putting these things together to understand, hey, now that he's risen, all of it falls together. And in all the scriptures, we see that, whether it's, uh, um, whether it's Exodus and this lamb that's blood is spilled so that the people of Israel can be set free, knowing what Jesus did for us, we go, no, wait, that makes sense. That's deliverance through sacrifice. Or you get to the story of the good Samaritan and you go, well, how do I understand the story of the good Samaritan? Is, does it mean we just be nice to people? And then you realize, wait, 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 the story of the good Samaritan is about a really unusual and surprising savior. And who does that point to? Over and over and over in next week's story. And please come back. Next week we'll be in the next text. And, and Jesus is going to be talking about this very thing, that everything in here points to him. And suddenly you can just have clarity on all these things because of it. it it's, it's like that movie. We're not supposed to like movies as Christians, right? That's what some people think. But that movie, the Bruce, Bruce Willis movie, The Sixth Sense. You guys know that movie? You're like, it's rated R. We don't watch that movie. Okay, good. So, um... That movie that none of you saw that you know I'm talking about. And if you're not going to watch it, fine. You won't, want, you won't care if I blow the ending. Because here's the truth. Bruce Willis, it turns out, greatest surprise ending ever, he's dead. Now, if you're mad that I just blew that, you've had 20 years to watch that movie. Just get over it. Okay? So I don't care. But, but here's what you find out, right? You, you watch that movie, and at the end of the movie, you find out he's dead. And once you know that he's a ghost this whole time, this is a super Easter sermon, isn't it? Um, once you know he's a ghost, suddenly everything else makes sense. In fact, you realize things you thought you understood weren't actually the case at all. You're thinking, man, his wife's frustrated with him, and she's going to leave him, and she's sort of flirting with this other guy. What's going on? And then you find out, wait a minute, she's actually grieving because he's been dead for a while, and she's trying to figure out how to go on his life. Am I going too far on the movie? That's just the idea, though. Once you know the end, everything else makes sense. And listen, once you know that Jesus is the Lord, that he rose from the dead, and that he is alive today, everything else in, our li- in the Bible and in our lives can make sense again. Amen? We have clarity. And I'll, I'll go so far as to say this, nothing makes sense without it. And the last one is this. I'm, I lied to you. There's two more. The, second, the third one is this. We, we can celebrate. And, and here's why. The resurrection means we have a future. Because listen, guys, one of the things that even secular historians were always puzzled by they always wondered, how is it that Christianity could spread the way that it did and overtake every pagan religion, every Greek philosophy? It became the dominant force on the planet in a way that every other religion and every other philosophy or way of life never was able to do. It dominated all of them and it's still around to this day. How is that possible? And even secular historians that doubt the truth in this thing will say that they all agree. They say it's because of the resurrection, because no other philosophy, no other religion provides people with hope like Christianity does, because all of the others eventually, you're just dust in the wind. There's no purpose to your life. And in the end, you're just going to be gone. And there's atheists and some who will, who will try to say, hey, it's just the way it is. We shouldn't be afraid of death. It's just the way it is. That's ridiculous. You should absolutely be afraid of death. 
Because no one wants to really think that this is it. And even while you're here now, do you really want to think that every loved one that you've had before you that has gone on before you is now just completely gone? Who would want that? And then Christianity comes and Jesus raises again. The Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. What it means is this. When he rose again from that tomb, he conquered death and he provides a way that we can skate. He provides a way that suddenly death isn't the end for us anymore, any more than it was the end for him. It gives us hope in Christianity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason we say we should be celebrating and cheering this morning is because we should be celebrating and cheering this morning because we have hope. Even when we don't feel it, it's there. Amen? It's there. Jesus' life means life for us. And the last one is this, is we can be clean. If you're a Baptist in the room, those were all C's. I worked really hard on that. Just so you know, we can be clean. Because here's the thing. You know, we always say, hey, the tomb is empty. I mean, yeah, the tomb didn't have the body of Jesus in it. But you know what got left in that tomb? Our sin. That old life. The book of Romans says this, Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, here's what the Bible says after this, and this is what matters the most. He rose from the dead, a whole bunch of people saw him, he ascended into heaven, and he has said, listen, believe in me, follow me. Believe that my sacrifice on the cross paid the price for you. Believe that my resurrection from the grave will provide life for you. Believe that I am God. Believe that I am Lord. You put your faith in me. It's not about how good you are, not about how much money you give or how many Sundays you went to church. It's about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that when that happens, somehow... Because of our faith in him. It's like that old life that we still kind of live is, is laid in the tomb with him. And then we are raised to walk in this new life. And, and the Lord now looks at us as if we're clean? Like, can that be? Like, we clean up really good on an Easter Sunday morning, right? But, but we know us. And he says, clean, forgiven. Because my son hung on the cross and the penalty and the punishment for everything you ever did was placed on his shoulders and he carried it to death. He carried it to the tomb. And if you'll put your faith in him, your sin stays there too. And you are raised to walk in a new life. And so you go, how do I do this? You go, first you just proclaim. You just make the proclamation of faith and you just say, he is Lord. Lord, save me. Pray the prayer. Ask Jesus in your heart, however you want to do it, but you just believe. And then the next step was called baptism. This morning, we actually have over here a baptismal. And the idea of this over here is it's supposed to be essentially like a tomb. And when someone gets saved, they become a Christian. The Bible talks about this new life. It calls it being born again. And as we just read in that text, that we are now buried with him in baptism. And so the testimony that the scriptures gave to us 
when we become part of the family of God, when we become Christians, is we confess with our mouth and then we come into the waters of baptism and in there we are laid into the water in the same way that Jesus' body was laid in the grave. But then we are raised up out of the water and it's this picture of being washed of our sins. It's this picture of being born again. It's this picture of resurrecting out of that dead tomb. And the idea is you are clean and forgiven and free and loved and saved and accepted. And it's a beautiful thing. And what we want you to know is this, listen, this is all true. And you've got to wrestle with this. It's real. Some of us learned this long, long ago. Others learned this recently. But my prayer for you is this. Be saved. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't go through life hopeless. Don't go through life looking for life among the dead. Right now we're going to show you actually a video of our good friend Gus who could tell you himself. He'll say it in the video that he's spent time in his own life trying everything that's out there, but the Lord has saved him. And then I'm going to be in this water with my new friend and my new brother in Christ, Gus. And Gus is going to get baptized. And some other people are going to be lined up over there too, and they're going to be baptized because they're giving their lives to Jesus. And this is what I want to say this morning. Friends, family, visitors, whoever you are, listen, come to Jesus come to Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're not a visitor. Maybe you're here and you've been coming to church, even this church for a really, really long time. And you've never been baptized or you've never even given your heart to Jesus. Maybe that's the truth. And maybe that makes it harder because then you're thinking, man, if they see me get baptized, they're going to think I've been faking it the whole time. Hey, I'll just help you. We all fake it all the time. (laughs) Be saved. Jesus gave his life for you and he rose from the dead to conquer death for you. And he stands now not with arms pinned open to the cross, but like that father in the prodigal son story with his arms open saying, come, there is life here. Let me introduce you to my friend Gus. Will you guys roll that? Everything was for God's purpose. That is what really hit home. It was always hard as a wife to go and see other women with their husbands and not have that. So when he started going with me, I was really thankful. But at that point, I think he was going just for me. Such a gospel story, his experience. I had a valve that had failed. And so they had to do open heart surgery. It was all wired up with all these monitors and stuff. They had to shock me twice uh, to get my heart back. I was in there for 10 days altogether. About day eight, I was by myself. About five o'clock, I'm on the toilet and I finally just broke down and started crying. And I asked God that, you know, save me. I accept him as my savior. There was a real sensation of uh, light for me, like an early morning sun or something. It just kind of came from above. And then I had the feeling that I was uh, 
lift it up and put on somebody's shoulders. And I was going through uh, the computer and I found a picture of a lamb on Jesus' shoulders. And that's exactly how it felt. Trials bring you to that place. He is there if you just ask and reach out. God's closer than we think. A friend of ours named Jenny talked to me after I got saved. She walked up to me and she had a big smile on her face. She goes, you know, I always knew I'd see you in the kingdom. <laughs> I want to get baptized because I want to get washed. I want my sins washed away from me. I just feel really blessed that God gave us this window to His power. When you think about what God has done, it's just beyond words. I've tried it all and there's nothing better out there. There really isn't. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my friend Gus. Can you give it up for Gus? Gus, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I do. Do you believe that he died for your sins? I do. Anything you want to say to everybody before we dunk you? Only 6% of the people 65 and older get saved. And I hope if you're out there and you're older like me, you see, you see the light. You see God. Amen. 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 I'm going to baptize my friend Gus, and I want you right now, if you too would join him in the waters of baptism and give your life to Jesus this morning, will you come forward? Let's worship the Lord together.